Most don't know that the story is autobiographical. Dr. Seuss's inspiration for the story was not Ebenezer Scrooge, but himself. The author himself said, I was brushing my teeth on the morning of the 26th of last December when I noted a very grinchous countenance in the mirror. It was Seuss. Something had gone wrong with Christmas, I realized, or more likely with me. So I wrote the story about my sour friend, the Grinch, to see if I could rediscover something about Christmas that obviously I lost. One source even said that you could see him driving around his local neighborhood with a license plate that simply said Grinch. A subtle detail that's easy to miss from the book is the Grinch lamenting that he had put up with the jubilation of the Who's for 53 years, and at the time the book was published, he himself was 53 years old. So why do I mention this book? There's a few obvious reasons right on the surface. Similarities between the Grinch and the main character of the text we'll be looking at this morning, Jonah. We will be in Jonah chapter 4. And as we look at Jonah chapter 4 and we begin in the first verse, we, we enter into Jonah's predicament. The text says that he was displeased and exceedingly angry. God is in control of this world that we live in. And he sends circumstances into our world, and some of them we love and some of them we do not. I once heard a wise man say that life is a lot like woodworking. You have this initial view of how your life is going to go. Just like the woodworker has this vision of this beautiful chair that he wants to build. And after getting the lumber and supplies, he realizes that some of his boards are cupped. And that the grain of the wood as he's working on it does, is kind of wild and it doesn't yield to what he wants. And after maybe a few miscuts of his own, he winds up with a table that looks nothing like the chair he envisioned. And so life is that way. And God ordains it to be that way. Jonah was exceedingly displeased and angry. Have you ever been that way? God's circumstance, God ordaining circumstances in your life that's not preferable and it, it brings out a response from you that's negative and perhaps sinful. And was it ever justified to be that way? It doesn't have to be anger. You could be displeased and sad, displeased and accepting, displeased and nevertheless grateful, but you will never be displeased and indifferent. I think we're going to find a little bit of ourselves in Jonah this morning. So why was Jonah angry? This is probably one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible, but I think we need to orient ourselves to it once more. He was summoned by God to preach to the wayward city of Nineveh. He found the mission not to his liking, so he began to rapidly travel in the opposite direction. He eventually boarded a ship with a bunch of mariners heading to a town named Tarshish. The Lord sent a powerful storm, leading the occupants of the boat to question who brought the anger of the Lord upon them. When it was discovered that Jonah was the culprit, they hurled him into the sea. The text says that God appointed an important word in our passage this morning, a great fish to swallow him. While in the belly of the fish, he repented of his sins, and he thanked God for mercy. Then it says, God, quote, spoke.
spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. He goes to Nineveh, preaches a brief message about the coming wrath of God. The Ninevites repent, and that brings us to the present. And usually anytime somebody deals with this passage, we immediately start pelting Jonah with tomatoes. Who would ever think this way in this circumstance? Who would, who would ever not want the Ninevites to repent? But we have to bring real history in this and understand exactly who the Ninevites were, and maybe we'll find that we sympathize with Jonah. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was a terrible enemy of Israel. And we have a lot of uh, records of images that the Assyrians carved and painted that represented their culture. And in those images, we have mounds of severed heads, people being led around by lip rings, bodies impaled by sticks, severed heads used as decorations, people being dismembered, tongues being cut out. And this is how they wanted to be represented. This was behavior that they found. They wanted it to be indicative of who they were. And so you could imagine the United States, we have enemies today. We have people like China and people like Russia that are always an imminent threat. But could you imagine if they were this severe? And so Jonah did not want his enemies to prosper, just like we do not want our enemies to prosper. So Jonah was angry with the direction the Lord was taking all of this. We read in verse 2, it says, He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God. Is there anyone in your life that frustrates you? Somebody that you're tied to, somebody that you're around all the time. And let's take it further. Are they predictably or dependably frustrating? You already know what they're going to do, and when they do it, you've already been angry with them for some time. A person who is always late, where you have a meeting time and you want them to be punctual, you want them to honor your time, and, and they, they just show up whenever and they're casual about it. That's, that's frustrating. Or maybe a, pan, a person who never answers the phone, you need to contact them, and, and you really depend upon them to answer that phone so that you can contact them, and they just never do. I live in a dead zone, and so I'm, I'm usually this guy. Or maybe it's a coworker you can never count on. This is the worst the kind of person that sidesteps work, leaves things in a mess, and, and there you are, and your workload is doubled trying to keep up with the work that they sidestep. Well, I would like to present another person in this passage who is predictable. And for Jonah, he was frustratingly predictable. That is the Lord. In essence, Jonah says, I knew it. I knew that you would do this. I can always predict that you're going to be patient, gracious, and slow to get angry. And the reason why I was so motivated to go with this passage this morning is because the culture at large, but even professing Christians, struggle with a terrible view of God. For some reason, we just inherit this cultural perspective that God's always angry, always wrathful. At the very best, God is just represented by a cold shoulder. 
And my guess is between bad preaching, bad parenting, and our own sinful hearts, that's how we got here. But I want to exhort you this morning to, to consider how Jonah wished he had a God who was characterized by wrath and anger, or how he wished he could have a mean, graceless God. But praise God, like my woodworking analogy, we don't always get what we want. And so next time you don't go freely to God to pray or you don't approach the throne of grace boldly because you know that you're a sinner, you need to remember Jonah's disappointment. It needs to, and it will fuel you to have some joy and some confidence. His, you need to remember his displeasure and let that be your pleasure. You need to remember his anger and let that be your happiness. Part of the issue is that Jonah understood the Bible better than we do. What I read, a portion of in verse 2, is actually a direct quote from Exodus. The full verse says, I know that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. This is, this is a quote from Exodus. It goes back to right after the golden calf incident. You remember how the Israelites sinned egregiously, and the Lord told the Israelites, look, I'll bring you to the land, but I'm not going with you. If I go with you, I'm going to destroy you because of how sinful you are. And it's in your best interest that I'll be gracious to you. I get you from point A to point B. I'll protect you, but I'm not going with you. And Moses was distressed. And he says, now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you. And he goes on to say, I cannot imagine a future where we travel and you're not with us how will we be any different than the nations lord if you're not with us how will i have any confidence that i'll get there if you're not with us it says and the lord said to moses this very thing that you have spoken i will do for you have found favor in my sight and i know you by name moses said please show me your glory and the lord said i will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you and this is the next thing that happens is the cleft of the rock thing where the Lord passes before him and says, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he utters what Jonah says right here. A gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And this was kind of the very heart of Israelite religion because Moses says, show me your name, uh, show me your ways, show me... Your glory, and the Lord says, okay, I'll pass before you, and I'm going to say something very indicative of who I am, something that's just core. And these are the words that he uttered. And so Jonah knew Yahweh pretty good, and that's why he didn't have a poor view of him. And so we, in the 21st century, we're so tainted by so many sources that have done everything in their power to warp our minds about this God, but Jonah didn't have any of that. He understood his Bible well, and for anybody who could doubt that God was gracious, Jonah could in anger place his finger there in Exodus and say, no, I have evidence otherwise. He's not that way. He continues his prayer in verse 3. He says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life away from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah acts terribly sinfully in response to this circumstance. He acts like a petulant child. He skates over a passage about God's goodness, 
despises that goodness, and then just says, kill me. In essence, he says, I don't like the way that you're superintending the world. And so, without knowing the rest of the story, how, how would you expect the Lord to respond to this incident? Without knowing the rest of the story, my 21st century brain envisions the Lord responding in anger and wrath. But the only angry person here is Jonah. The Lord just says, do you do well to be angry? The very same question he poses to any of us in our sinful response. It could be, do you do well to be angry? But it could be, do you do well to be downcast? Do you do well to feel alone in this world? Do you do well to believe that you have no hope? Do you do well to respond that way? Is that the proper response? The Lord here asks a rhetorical question, and it's meant to make Jonah wonder if his response is a fitting one. We read on in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. The interesting thing about Jonah chapter 4 is how much it's avoided in popular culture. The other day, just a few days ago, actually, my child was watching an animated short about Jonah, and it ended when the Ninevites repented. And I can perhaps forgive them because the ending of Jonah is a strange ending, and it was meant to be strange. I once read a Bible scholar that said any time that there's something that's seemingly strange in the Bible, it was meant to be that way, and you need to pay attention. But it says that the first details that we have is that he left town, and he built a booth east of the city. These are important details because in the wilderness wanderings, before they came into the promised land, they were east of the Jordan. And you may recall that in their wilderness wanderings, they had to build booths. And here he does both of those. And you recall he just quoted something from Exodus about the graciousness of God. So the original reader would have noticed all of these details. But... The main thing is here is that he doesn't realize it, but he's mimicking his sinful ancestors. That the being eastward in this booth, it's supposed to remind you that just like his ancestors, he doesn't always trust God and he's not always faithful. And speaking of sinful ancestors, just like Adam and Eve's fig leaves were not sufficient to cover their nakedness, Jonah's booth was not sufficient to cover his head. We're told in the text that the Lord had to appoint a plant. And this is, it just keeps getting stranger as we go. The Lord appoints a plant, and here we have probably the most humorous portion of the book of Jonah. Because throughout this passage, we've seen Jonah be at enmity with everybody. He's everybody's enemy. God shows up, tells him to do something, he disregards it entirely. 
he gets on the boat with the mariners. He doesn't care about their safety. He's ultimately going to bring the wrath of God down upon them. He doesn't care about them. The whale was a real speed bump. The worm was not his friend. But this plant mattered to Jonah. It reminds me of the Tom Hanks movie, Castaway, where uh, he was a FedEx executive, was traveling overseas. And if you've seen the movie, you know that the plane crashes in the Pacific Ocean. He's the sole survivor. He winds up on a deserted island, and his best friend was a volleyball that floated up on the land, a volleyball he named Wilson. And it was kind of the comedy relief in the movie, and, and so it is here. But we see the mercy of God because the plant was ordained by God to save Jonah from his discomfort. So in other words, Jonah sees a need, or God sees a need that Jonah has and meets that need with this plant. But the same Lord who gives is the same one who takes away. And the same Lord that appointed a plant appointed a worm to destroy the plant. God is the master superintendent who has command and control over every molecule. And brothers and sisters, there is not one rogue molecule in that number. He is sovereign over everything. In his wise counsel, he determined to give him the plant, and in the same wise counsel, he decided to take it away. And so it is in our lives. Everything we have was given by the Lord, and everything we lose is by his design. We may not always know the reason, but by faith we know it is so. But let's not get too somber because we have to remember that Jonah, his love was not a special love. It was a weed. It, I mean, I don't, have to, I don't have to describe what a weed is for you guys. You guys know what a weed is. We live in Louisiana. We're surrounded by them even in the winter. But the Bible's rich imagery changes the way we view everything. It's hard to look at a mustard seed without thinking about Scripture's use of that imagery. Or if you were to see lilies of the field, you know, the Bible's painted the way that you would think about that. From jawbones to she-bears to rainbows, the Bible has given everything in our world significance. And I never want you to look at a weed the same way again. If I could ask, I may never see you guys again. If I were to ask a favor of you, it would be that when you saw the weed you would remember what the Lord says to you in this passage. You recall a weed is an uncultivated plant that has no immediate use for humans, not food, not, not anything. And Jonah had more love for this plant than he had for this entire group of perishing people. And so for Jonah, a weed was something that proved his priorities were out of order. A weed is something that in the scheme of things matters very little, but nevertheless is more important to you than things that actually matter. So it could be something that may well deserve your love, and maybe it's something that you should love, but you, your love for it dwarfs the love for things that you should love of utmost importance. And I could go on and on about examples of weeds. It could be a hobby in your life. You could collect something It could be endless scrolling on social media. It could be any number of things, but I don't think any modern Christian would deny that there's things that take up our thought life and our hearts that, that doesn't take away from something that's perhaps more important. I was in a thrift store one time, and I saw a, uh, 
a Bible on tape, an audio Bible, and the name of it was You've Got the Time. And I thought it was interesting that our excuses for not having enough time for being in the Word are so ubiquitous that that's how they're going to market this audio Bible. Oh, you say you don't have the time, but you've got the time. And why don't we have the time? Well, in my own personal life, if I'm neglecting the Word of God, it, it's because I'm, I found weeds. I found something else that has caught my attention and is holding it. And there's all kinds of things that we neglect in the modern church because of weeds. Bible reading is one I've mentioned, but what about your prayer life? That's, that's something that's just so easy to neglect when you're so distracted. Informal fellowship, that's some, not something I see uh, the modern church do much. We have endless Bible studies and fellow, what we call fellowship meals, but informal fellowship, that doesn't happen very much. The modern church has a multiplication problem. We, uh, we, we don't uh, evangelize not just merely because we're obstinate people, but because we don't even know what that looks like anymore. As I was preparing this message, I got an email in my inbox from Crossway, and the name of it was, Help, I don't like evangelizing. And I thought, that's, that's providential. Verse 9, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? I, uh, I spent some time trying to think of a good title for this message. Sometimes a title is like a handle of a bucket, and it gives you the ability to, to grab the whole message. And uh, my first inclination was to call it obnoxious grace. It's kind of catchy because you... You never think of grace as obnoxious, but for one man it was. Or the unnervingly strange ending to Jonah. I've stressed how strange the chapter is, and I don't think I, I, don't think I had to. I think you, you probably know well how strange the ending to Jonah is. One, one that was at the forefront of my mind was of plants and of men. But where I landed was kids and cattle. Because we've already talked about the Lord's great mercy for Nineveh, but it gets even stranger. You move on and it says, The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of different phrases that are used of children that are similar to this one. So I'm of the persuasion that that's what that means, the people who don't know their right hand from their left. But who here didn't feel like it was anticlimactic the first time you read this book and the last word in your English Bible was cattle? I mean, this is a epic story, and it traverses land and sea, and it covers all the created world, and we land on cattle. But I want to let you know that that's not by accident. That wasn't a flaw in the writing of this book. We're exploring the grace of God. We're exploring the amazing grace of God to these very sinful people. And 
the writer of Jonah wants you to know that it trickles down to the kids and it trickles all the way down to the cattle. I mean, if this was a movie, it would be black in credits at cattle. But the amazing part of Jonah is not that God considers children or considers cattle, it's that God considered Jonah, that God was gracious to Jonah. The, the character in the story that's hardest to process that God is being so merciful to is not the non-believer that is out there, but it's the believer that's sitting right here. And that's our story, that every day we need fresh grace from God, and God supplies it. I started with a Dr. Seuss introduction where Dr. Seuss, uh, the Grinch was basically autobiographical, and... Um, that's kind of where I'm going with this. Just like the Grinch, whenever Dr. Seuss saw him, he saw himself, and we see Jonah, we ought to see ourselves. That's where we are. And when the Lord Jesus referenced Jonah, he seemed to think that Jonah spoke of him. In this strange way, Jonah was an anti-type of Christ where he was a photo-negative. And everything that Jonah was, Christ isn't, and everything that Jonah isn't, Christ is. And so Jonah did not have any love at all for the heathen. He did not he did not consider him at all, but the Lord Jesus in my own life, I can say, came right where I was in my filth and saved me. And I will say that our sin is greater than the Ninevites sin because the Ninevites sin against humanity, we sin against God. Jesus didn't merely come and preach grace. He stood in our place and died as our substitute. Unlike Jonah's response, Jonah rejo Jesus rejoices to do this for us. We are the Grinch. Our license plate says Grinch on it. That's us. But just like there was abundant mercy for Jonah, there's abundant mercy for us. And I've I want you to consider the Jesus that is as kind and patient with you as he was with Jonah. I mean, on my ride home, I might get a terrible attitude, and I'm thankful that God is with me and loves me and cares for me. And I want to remind you guys that you have that same benefit in Christ. And if you don't have that benefit, I exhort you to believe upon Christ and have that benefit. So in closing, we need the mercy of God and thankfully, we have an abundant supply of it in Christ. Father, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your word. And I thank you, dear God, for this fellowship of believers that seem to be heavily invested in that. And I lift them up to you. I ask that you would meet their needs. You know what they are. They're manifold, Father. And I pray that you would bless them with the pastor. And I pray that you'd bless them to continue to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.